to Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we exercise our pop culture demons by tackling our media to-do lists one week at a time. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is my co-host, Sam. Hello. And filling in for Andy today is Matt of the Podwraiths, a Deep Space Nine podcast. Thanks for coming on, Matt. Well, thanks for having me back. Happy to be here. This week, we are talking camp, not summer camp, as Andy erroneously thought when we were planning this episode. That's great. But an aesthetic that emerged in the early 20th century and spawned many, many cult classics in both film and television and any other pop culture medium you care to think of. Often characterized as an essentially queer style, camp often subverts genre expectations and appeals to both film nerds and popular audiences alike. So this week, Matt takes a road trip in the outback, Sam has the time of her life again, and I break a sex machine. I want to break in here real quick because Andy was not able to be with us this week. He wanted to be, and I I just want to put in here that... Since you brought up the the erroneous assumption about camp, when asked to define camp, I said queer. To me, it was like, that's just the one word definition of it. If it's queer, it's probably camp. Or it very much could. Not all all queer is camp, but all camp is queer. The other (laughs) thing I wanted to say was Andy wanted us to pass on for the week that Bubba Hotep, the film he was going to use for this episode, is exactly what you think if you crossed... A mummy movie with an Elvis movie. And so that's segment one right there. Yeah, that, there we go. We already have done a segment and we're only three minutes into the episode. Actually, probably less, knowing how much I edit off the top. Camp, as Matt pointed out before this episode, is kind of a nebulous concept. It's more of a performance than it is like a genre, or it's more of an aesthetic than it is a genre. But Matt, how would you define camp as you conceive of it? You know, it's almost kind of like gender in which it's fake and made up, but also like you can perform it like a certain way and kind of like, you know, choose that way. No, I I think it's easier to define what camp isn't than what camp is. And this is me dodging and not answering your question, by the way. Um, And like, (laughs) nicely, but like, I think too, like, there's an interesting phenomenon kind of, I think, as we've the later like 20th century and probably like the early like 20th where like i don't think you can do camp intentionally and when you try to intentionally be camp that's not campy right like or as it's not as successful as 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 camp but like i agree where there is like as there's definitely elements of like queerness and performance and kind of like this over the topness sometimes scenery chewing or whatever like I don't know. I I haven't seen it, but I'm thinking of like the trailer of the second Huntsman movie, right? Where you have Charlize Theron dripping gold and like, you know, chewing scenery like that to me is camp. So I said a minute ago that that camp and queer can be used synonymously. And as I'm thinking about it, it's really not true. What is true, I think, is that the antonym of camp is straight. Right. And and that's the similarity. Like gay and straight are opposite, so are camp and straight. Although camp and queer aren't the same thing. And I I think this because 
as you said, there's the element of performance there, and that gets into queer theory and and Judith Butler's definition of performativity, which is based in drag, which is one of the things that's most closely associated with camp. And and the, the thing to point out about that, that's been a huge criticism of it, is that when she said gender is performance, she wasn't just saying that you perform queerness or you perform camp. What she was saying is all of it. Even the straights are doing performance. More so than some that they don't believe, right? But that gets to what you're trying to say, I think, is that when you try to intentionally perform camp, you're doing a kind of fake performance that really comes off more straight than anything else. Because a lot of that overperforming fakeness is what we think of as straight culture. Well, a lot of times it's pushing things like gender performance to absurdity, right? Like this idea of I'm going to perform a lot of this is a lot of camp is invested in femininity, especially. But this idea that like you're performing it so much that it almost starts to break down in the performance. Well, right. The problem is, though, it's a it's a queer form of femininity. Right. Which is most often being enacted by not cis women. Right. right. And and so what happens there is like, so we'll talk about Barbarella here in a little bit, but what happens is when you had that second wave feminism movement where they're, where they're talking about what the performance of femininity is, that's when you start having reactions to essential femininity, you know, whereas, you know, women who are involved in the feminist movement are like, no, 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 that's not what we do. Whereas a lot of other people are like, well, we'd like to do it if you'd like to let us. And that's that's where a lot of that comes out. And and we'll we'll get into it as we kind of like discuss. I think we have a good selection of like films specifically to pull out these threads, right? But it it's like camp is both fun and hot like like so many things in, you know, the Western world and our oppressive systems, right? Where it's like, yes, camp is fun and harmless, and yes, camp is a you know a reaction to these these no patriarchal like norms in which we're like criticizing but also at the same time it's also enforcing these norms and i think as we say that like a lot of camp crosses over with queerness it's a very specific flavor of queerness that is largely queer white cis men in for like yes reacting to the ways in which we are put upon by straight society but also re-entrenching a lot of those patriarchal norms for lack of a, a a lesser phase but kind of like white supremacist norms a lot of the times and in which they where white cis queers white cis male queers center themselves within the community and and then build themselves up and i think a lot of those systematic inequalities that are inherent within a lot of the queer community are entrenched by some of these these campion societal norms and i think that's something in the adventures priscilla queen of the desert which was was my monkey that i exercised this week was something that really really stuck with me and i think even with barbarella as being tessa's nominee it even has this weird element where the director is james fonda's husband at the time Right. And there's this interesting element of Jane Fonda 
of who we know her to be, who she was in the 60s, who she became in the late 60s, going into the 70s, and how a lot of men, now this is more of the straights, but then responded to, like there's a Jane Fonda meme where it's like, who we what we wanted Jane Fonda to be and it's Barbarella and then who we are and it's a lot of, who you know, who we didn't want her to be is a lot of her more like, you know, activists, like leftist leaning sides. There's a lot to say about what you said a minute ago, but you know, so, but I won't say it, but just, you know, bless you. Uh, the thing to remember is we are a pop culture podcast. And so when we're talking about these things, we are talking about pop culture. And as much as many of us believe we live and breathe pop culture, it, it, the important thing to remember is when you're talking about camp and the queer community, camp is not applicable to many people in the queer community trying to navigate their daily lives. In fact, it can be harmful. You know, the, the camp has current debates about certain people in the LGBT community. Camp has harmed them as much as it has yeah. helped them because it really enforces that one vision of queerness, as you, as you point out. And it has nothing to do with people trying to use the bathroom. Yeah. Right. But if you look hard enough, it's been weaponized that way. So it, it's, it's really important to, to remember that this, this idea of camp is a huge, giant, big idea that's informed and created and helped allowed people to have discussions. But it is just one thing, as you said. And I think that was important to point out. Before we move on, I do want to say a couple of things. I don't know how to really follow that, so <laughs> I'm just going to We like, have an episode, and you're hosting. Good luck. Yeah, I know. It's good. I'm really excited because I love having these conversations. But like, as I was like trying to define camp, and I was looking up a couple of scholars that I know talk about camp, including Susan Sontag, who also did a lot of stuff with illness and disability that I love, but she wrote a whole book on camp where she basically said that like camp is low and high culture like mingled together and the idea that camp isn't just a satire it can be satirical but the idea is is that she says it has an underlying seriousness you can't camp about something you don't take seriously you're not making fun of it you're making fun out of it and the idea that like most camp properties aren't specifically satirizing a genre, but what they can do is take that genre into absurdity, basically, or they can add like those elements to specific genres. But a lot of times the people who are making these films know the genres more than the people watching the films do. And so I think that's a really interesting point. The other point that I thought you would find interesting, Sam, that I just found out today <laughs> is that a lot of scholars believe camp as an aesthetic came into being as a resistance to modernism in the early 20th century because that was the dominant form of literary and artistic culture in the early 20th century. To me, that makes sense from, like, modernism is straight culture, if you look at it. It's very much like we can know everything, the totality of everything, everything can fit together in this very neat little package, whereas camp sort of messes that up by bringing in, like, both pop culture and art together. Well, modernism is the ultimate mansplaining. Well, yeah. <laughs> because it's, it's the idea of, well, no, it, modernism is, it, the way I always explain modernism is if you think about everything that came before modernism, 
It's storytelling by looking at the story as a tree. It's got its root, its trunk, and then its branches and leaves, right? It has a beginning, middle, and an end. And modernism is the belief that we can tell a story better than a root book structure. We can can tell it by, if, if you understand the whole forest, you will understand that particular root book, the particular tree, right? And so it's basically... Modernism is basically saying, well, actually, name every tree in the forest and its first cousin and the ERA or the batting average that it had in the 1957 baseball season. And if you need a footnote for that, you're not real T.S. Eliot. And so camp can very easily fit under the the moniker of postmodernism because it's a reaction to that and saying, no, that is not a safe way for many people to tell stories. To, to quote a famous camp performer in a famous camp performance, Rose Tint My World, it keeps me safe from my trouble and pain. Yeah, and I, I love <laughs> that quote too, because like the other thing I wanted to say about camp is that it's very much about pleasure. Like it's this idea of like finding, especially aesthetic pleasure in visuals, in pulpiness, in the performance itself. Like the idea of watching something that brings you pleasure instead of something that's very intellectual. Not that camp can't be intellectual, but a lot of times it kind of goes a different route. <laughs> Ironic. I think Barbarella is is in a very weird way, extremely intellectual. Well, let's talk about Barbarella. So I watched Barbarella. It's the first of the films chronologically that we're talking about today. It came out in 1968. I don't really know how to summarize this film. (laughs) So I'll just give you some of the basics. Barbarella is a very attractive astronaut, spacewoman, in a undetermined future. They don't actually tell us when this is. She is sent by the president of Earth to retrieve a scientist. The Republic of Earth as a representative for the uh, some sort of planetary federation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And she's sent to retrieve a scientist named Durand Durand. And if you think that sounds like Durand Durand, that is actually where they got the name of the band. And she basically crash lands on this planet that is a very different culture than the culture she comes from. It's more primitive. I'm putting huge air quotes around that. It's basically about her sex adventures on this planet. I mean, that's the easiest way to describe the plot of this of this film. <laughs> Tessa, please, please tell me now, is there something I should know about this movie that, that makes it more than just sex adventures? I have to say, of all of the... Every time somebody said Duran Duran, Sam just like let out a giggle every <laughs> single time that happened in the film, especially when they were like, here's a device that will help you search for Duran Duran. <laughs> so, they did not check Rio. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> there was no union of the snake. Several people did attempt to make a view to a kill, though. <laughs> The thing about sometimes watching a movie that just leaves you wanting more, it's it's kind of like you're hungry like the wolf. <laughs> this world is very different from our ordinary world. <laughs> I'm done. Go ahead. I watched Barbarella for the first time actually earlier this year myself. And I will, if I can, you know, it is Leo season. So if I can just lean into my Leoness, read my own letterbox review. 
This really is a marker of men responding to and centering their perspectives in the sexual revolution. Maybe Vadem is just French, or both. It's both. So, Tessa, what did you think? I know you're hosting, but this is your, your segment. What, was, what did you think of Barbarella? Did you enjoy your experience with Barbarella? I did. And I understand the ways in which this film can be critiqued, but this is the kind of film that puts me in a weird position where I'm like, okay, I know that the person who made it, who directed it, and who adapted it, Roger Vadim, is very much centering his own perspective and his own sexuality in this film. But coincidentally, it's also very reminiscent of my sexuality (laughs) in this film. And so I very much enjoyed it. So I feel conflicted about enjoying it, but I also enjoy it. Tessa is is not a Leo, by the way, so... This movie is mostly a vibe. It doesn't really invest a lot in the plot, which is very, very simple. It is mostly interested in the visuals for which it has been praised quite a bit. It works both on a camp level, but also as a science fiction film, which I think camp often gravitates to genre, especially things like science fiction and horror, actually, as well. We're not really talking about any horror films today, I think. I don't know if Priscilla is a horror film. I don't think it is. But like, I feel like when we look at films like Rocky Horror and other pulpy films or even like other slasher films, you get this like combo of camp and other more recognizable elements of the genre that I think work really well in some cases and don't work very well in other cases. This is a film in which those two things work together very well. You said we weren't talking about any horror films and I believe you have clearly already memory hold those dolls. Oh yeah, except for that one scene in Barbarella <laughs> with the dolls. Oh god. That was terrifying. Oh god. Oh my god. They had like metal teeth in their <laughs> mouths. It was horrible for There me. is obviously very fake, but there is gore. I mean Yeah, I love that know. every single time she starts bleeding from some sort of injury by the next scene, all the blood is gone. She is constantly be- being in danger. And then getting like pulled out of danger or finding her own way out of danger. And I want to talk about that a little bit when I talk about the sexuality of this film. But just as a little bit of background, I was told by Sam that I needed to ask you both about the producer, Dino De Laurentiis. Does anyone know about him? I don't know that much. I assumed you'd know a lot more than I did. I know enough to know that's a thing we should talk about. But Really quickly at a really high level. Like it was kind of... Well, maybe not one of, but it, it's a name you see a lot and is like a super like power producer over time. And like even. Yeah, he like produced over 500 films, like, right? Like a lot. Yeah. And like including like even like going as, as recently and like we're talking about. And like I don't I maybe not like the best person to talk about it because like I don't know a lot of his like biography and history kind of off the off the top of my head. But, like, the De Laurentiis family also, like, they're the ones who have the rights that they produce Silence of the Lambs. And, like, there's there's kind of these these common threads of, like, responding to the zeitgeist and, like... Well, he's also produced multiple David Lynch movies, including camp classic Dune. Yeah, the original so, Dune. Yeah. Very campy. That's right. That's right. He took, yeah. And the the film that the band Queen famously... That the soundtrack for Flash Gordon. Also very campy. 
But yeah, as mentioned, Jane Fonda is really the star of this. I mean, she is the the person that the camera focuses on, but you do get uh, John Philip Law as well, Anita Pallenberg, Milo O'Shea, Marcel Marceau, who I was really not expecting to be in this film, David Hemmings, Ugo Tognazzi, and Claude Dauphin. So like, it's a really fun little cast of like Jane Fonda, who has like her own very weird pop culture journey as like a sex icon, but also like an activist, like you said, and like the way she became famous is very interesting, but it makes sense if you think about camp often pulls together these like pop culture things. So the actors themselves almost become a part of the text in a way that I don't think happens in a lot of other aesthetics. This film is also based on a French comic, which makes total sense to me because (laughs) the way that this film is put together to me looks very much like a pulp 50s sci-fi. I mean, this is the 60s, but it does look like something from the 50s where you would get like the scantily clad woman on the cover and she's like in some dangerous, perilous situation. And like, it's very much like that kind of vibe. Yeah, it's very like Valerian there. Like that's kind of another French comic of the time. Yeah, but if we're going to talk about camp, It's very theatrical. There's over-the-top performances. The film is episodic. It mainly focuses on Barbarella in various situations than following, like, the overall plot. And the costumes. We can't talk about camp. Oh, the costumes are so good. Without talking about costumes. I can't stress this enough. I think she has a costume, like, every five minutes there's a costume change. Like, it's very often that she changes costumes because they get ripped or, like, something else happens or, like, there's a costume where she wraps herself in a fur and has a tail for a little while and then she's like, this is inconvenient. I need to change into something else. Like, there's a lot of, like, these types of things, but the costumes are very skimpy. There's a lot of, like, one pieces, a lot of bodysuits. They're often very shiny, There's a lot of, like, thigh-high boots, and she just looks awesome. And, of course, like, it's Jane Fonda. Like, she was a sex symbol in the 60s, partially because of this film, but she already was a sex symbol in her own right for other things. Uh, What's really funny is that I'm more familiar with Jane Fonda's work from her later career. And, like, let's face it, people's faces change over time. She doesn't really look a lot like she does in this film anymore, but... Once she opens her mouth, you can just hear that Jane Fonda voice. And like you expect her to hit, to yell for Frankie yeah. at any point. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but yeah, what was your favorite costume, Matt? Do you remember any standouts? I mean, there's the one with is it like the black and silver one where she has kind of like the like booty sharp bottoms on? Yeah. I don't I don't remember. Yeah, that that one's probably the one that like stands up, but I feel like that's the one that gets like referenced a lot and again talk about like camp films becoming cult classics and then referenced and internalized i think that's that's probably one of the outfits you see drag performers doing a lot like referencing like from this movie and so that's again too where it has this interesting element with barbarella where like you have this certain perception of femininity being reflected back that it's kind of both being in response to the sexual revolution, but also like furthering it, but through Roger Vadem's straight male kind of gaze at times that then gets taken up by, again, large, and I'm generalizing, but again, at the time, largely cis 
white men then referencing it and turning it back and it becomes this kind of like either queer lens or the way that which cis men perform femininity like in like there's there's this weird feedback loop that's kind of like interesting that you see kind of with with barbarella through largely straight lens that gets internalized and then femininity is performed by queer cis men that's referencing back to this very like male gaze like that isn't queer but is queer like it's yeah it's an interesting relationship there that i haven't quite quantified or find hard to explain let me ask you a question so i just thought of this like as you were explaining that do you think that camp especially when it comes to camp that is made by straight men do you think that there is sort of a value to like reader response type of theory to these to these films? Like the idea that, yes, there there is like this straight male gaze that's going on in this film. But a lot of times queer readers or queer viewers will sort of take that gaze and sort of like reinterpret it in their own paradigms because there is a lot of like queer attraction to this film, even though it's not made by a queer director. Yeah, it's it's the Spock thing though too, right? Like it's it's where in which we look for whether that coding is there intentionally or not intentionally. It's like you watch the original series of Star Trek, and it's 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 clear to me that Spock is queer. <laughs> like, yeah. I know that wasn't like the authorial intent, but it's like no, it's like you know, like that's that's my read. So like, yeah, I de- definitely think there's that that element of of kind of reader response, and then kind of claiming it as as our own and then that becomes you know it's 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 cultural legacy like intention intentionally you don't do a lot with reader response i really just want to yell stop trying to make thruples happen right now is (laughs) is really (laughs) you said spock was queer and i'm okay with that because it's obviously true but i am just deeply deeply conditioned to respond no stop trying to make thruples happen well if you don't uh, Slight spoiler alert, if you don't like Thrupples, don't watch this movie. (laughs) But anyway, I did want to talk about the sex in this film. So Vadim talks a lot about how he wanted to create a film in which there was a future that was clearly influenced by the sexual revolution and where sex wasn't something that is shameful. It's just something that you know is, is pleasurable and you know just is part of life. And it's this woman like taking control of her own sexuality. Sure, fine, great. But what I think is really interesting about this film is, like, she doesn't really know, like, about sex at the beginning. Like, her culture has, like, a completely different paradigm for viewing sex. And then she has to be, like, initiated into it by this man at the beginning. And then she loves it so much that she, like, starts having sex with everyone that she meets, especially if they save her in some way. And so I thought that was very interesting and very odd. I did like, though, the way she's just like, well, you saved my life. All right, I'll have sex with you. Like, that was just very fun to me, the way that she responded to that kind of thing. But like, there are, and there are some funny moments with sex in this. But yeah, there are some bits that I'm just kind of like, this doesn't feel as progressive as maybe people thought it was in the 60s. Her husband directed the movie. And as I said to you, I think there was a lot of the following happening in the 60s. When they were married, they did the director's sex stuff in the movies. And then when they got divorced, they said, I don't want to do your sex stuff anymore. Yeah, basically, that's there's a, what's there's happened. Because there was supposed to be a sequel, here. and she was just like, no. Because it was like after they weren't married anymore. So 
you know what this movie reminded me of like on a metatextual level with that kind of relationship director married to or or with this with the the lead performer thing is Darren Aronofsky's mother. Yes. Yeah. Cuz he was dating Jennifer Lawrence at the time and like they're very different movies and I mean <laughs> mother as an entry in, in camp is a whole other thing more like on the horror side but that idea of and I know this was an original and it's based on the comic but like that dynamic was something that I thought about a lot when I was watching this movie. Well, there's also to to talk about what camp is and camp isn't potentially, but to also talk about a different, it's not this relationship. It's a different kind of relationship. But if you think about eyes wide shut, you know, instead of a director taking advantage of their own dynamic with a, with a spouse, he took advantage of, a married couple's dynamic to basically exert that kind of, of, uh, of will that he had over actors and, and, you know, that allegedly destroyed their marriage. Although I really doubt that was the thing that did it. But this film also explores a lot of very tame BDSM and sadomasochistic qualities because there's a lot of scenes of her like, being tied up or a lot of scenes of her being like attacked and kind of bloodied by something like there's a lot of like eroticism that I don't know if we were really talking about a whole lot in the 60s or at least not like textually maybe subtextually but it, it is interesting to see how like this film was trying to start a conversation about sex. I'm just not sure exactly like how successful it is. It's very much about the gaze and it's very much about like sex as something to be looked at rather than something to experience. Both the gaze and the gaze. (laughs) Other thing I wasn't a huge fan of is that one of the villains is a bisexual woman, (laughs) which she's portrayed as like, not being innocent like innocence is a big deal in this film and so like she's like not innocent she's evil and the way you can tell she's evil is that she wants to sleep with Barbarella but she also wants to sleep with Pygar the angel and so it's like the idea that she's evil because she's bisexual or her bisexuality makes her not innocent as opposed to Barbarella who is only engaging in straight sex but I guess there was at least representation in the 60s I don't know like I wasn't a huge fan of that. Although that the ending with that character is a little ambiguous, so I was willing to give the movie a bit of a pass on that. Her outfits are also great. Her outfits almost stuck with me more. Like there's that first one, and then like the like with the yeah. eye patch. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Real Asas Ventress from Star Wars. <laughs> uh-huh. Sam, did you want to talk about the soundtrack a little bit? Because you had some comments. There's a whole like. Thing to be said by somebody who knows more than I do about the soundtracks, these kind of countercultural soundtracks in the 80s. You know, you've got, uh, or 60s, 80s, good Lord. There's another different soundtrack thing in the 80s. But in the 60s, there's a lot of films that have that kind of lounge-esque, but also uh, some movies I'm thinking of like Zabriskie Point. You know, just a lot of melding of, like lounge music and earlier kinds of prog rock, uh, you know, and then you get it some some things like countercultural stuff like Grateful Dead and and a lot of these things get filtered in and then out through 
I don't know what to call it. Just a 60s film lens. It's a very... And this this was like the perfect distillation, this soundtrack. And so it was like, there should be bubbles in the air, but, you know, it's yeah. very... It's, it's jangly, but proggy. But if somebody like Tom Jones walked out, I wouldn't have been surprised. I mean, there's just a lot of things happening. And that's that's the overall take about the movie, too. For a movie that looks so simple, you know, that, that just seems like, oh, this is sex movie in space, sci-fi lounge. It's very complicated. Oh, yeah. Because it takes a lot of different things to be synthesized to come out with it. But that's it. And what I actually said during the movie was, I need... This sort of music piped into our house every hour of every day. I just want this to be the soundtrack. <laughs> I don't want to like spend all our time on Barbarella, but I do want to point this out is that Monkey Off My Backlog, a Barbarella, a Barbar- Barbarella <laughs> episode, a, a Barbarella appreciation podcast. <laughs> At our highest Patreon tier, you get uh, you get a turn on the orgasmo machine. Oh I my just, god. As a science fiction film, I will say that this works too. It is trying to say something very philosophical while being campy and silly and and like you said, kind of it seems simple, but it's got a lot of layers to it. So if you like science fiction, especially the weird pulpy science fiction of the 50s and 60s, you will like this film. And then cultural influences. I've already mentioned Duran Duran, the band that takes its name from the villain. But also you can see a lot of this in music, especially Kylie Minogue, Katy Perry, Ariana Grande, Lady Gaga. They've all done like music videos that are kind of inspired by Barbarella. I think Lady Gaga especially borrows some looks from Barbarella as well. When you if well, I'll do you one better too, Tessa. If you if you go and look at any of the stills from Jane Fonda's workout videos, Lady Gaga's not just ripping off one face of Jane Fonda. She's doing more than one. So. <laughs> I mean, Jane Fonda, queer icon. Even talking about like how like pulp culture is responding to itself and recycling and whatever. The idea of like Gaga doing the Gaga thing a lot of times, which is like the Madonna like up doing ball culture in Vogue, but then like the queers are this like middle link between some of like the Barbarella stuff and then Gaga recycling it from like it, there's this whole interesting feedback loop that is culture, right? I absolutely agree because camp a lot of times, like I said at the beginning, it it's not making fun of it. It's making fun out of it. Like it's taking something that a lot of people really love and playing with it. It's the sincerity that makes it yeah. right? Well, like, what's really funny is you brought up four people, right? You brought up Kylie Minogue and Lady Gaga, who, you know, as as, as Matt points out, kind of filter this Barbarella aesthetic through queer culture. And Ariana Grande and Katy Perry, who are much doing a much more cishet version of it. And we definitely react to the first two differently than we react to the last two. You know, the first two are artists. The other two are not, right? And so it's it's interesting to to appropriate Barbarella today. Like you can't just do it straight on, pun intended, because if you do, yeah, you have to like play yeah. into the queerness of it. Yeah. All right. Highly recommend Barbarella. I gave it 5 stars on Letterbox, no notes. Like I loved it so much. Anyway, 
set, let's talk about camp and certain performers, directors, personalities, and icons that camp tends to be around. Who are some of your favorite camp personalities or works that you just love? Matt, why don't you go first? Well, right off the top, uh, and I almost considered like fudging the truth so I could rewatch it for this podcast. Um, Showgirls? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like ultimately and 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 like i think too like i think a lot of like and this is maybe on like a slightly different vein of camp than like what we've kind of been talking about but like a lot of verhoven's works in general were doing that kind of hyper realism or even like hyper violence as as camp i like again showgirls comes to mind i think basic instinct is pretty campy at times maybe even like robocop and like the side of it there but that again is like camp as like intentional subversion like i think it's definitely in the house i don't know if it's like the same ways of like what we're talking about here also like talking about you know growing up the schumacher batmans obviously like batman returns is great and i think that is probably like pretty campy too but growing up i much preferred the schumacher batmans to the burton batmans and oh god why did i try and convince myself i was straight <laughs> now that i think about that now but yeah but they're also then doing through the 90s like schumacher's 90s lens again through like a queer filmmaking lens that's doing batman 66 right right for the 90s again so that's also again a little bit of that cultural feedback loop we're talking about of with barbarella of like something 60s very mod in a way being like regurgitated and remixed right? well and joel schumacher i feel like makes a lot of campy films especially in the 90s mm-hmm. like you can see that mm-hmm. in a lot of his his only oeuvre. the ones he makes while he's conscious Those- <laughs> <laughs> Jesus uh, matt you will be <laughs> so there was going to be a paul verhoeven episode of monkey later on this year but because of the number of things we decided to do with monkey that is going to be pushed to next year because I really want to be as close as I can to a Paul Verhoeven completionist. And I really need Tessa to see showgirls. Yeah. But I will also tell you because we are celebrating noir November this year, somebody, somebody on this podcast is going to be watching basic instinct for the first time. And, and that person, I feel like, I- <laughs> well, you'll also be seeing it for the first time. I feel like I, when I was on the Hitchcock episode earlier this year, I feel like I mentioned basic, basic instinct too. So There's I, our connection. Maybe that's my brand. You, you did it. <laughs> you you found a way. Oh, it's gonna be great. Sam, what are some of your like favorite works or personalities of camp? But just going back to what we said before, I I have had a a very uneasy relationship with camp because it just didn't seem like something for me. And and as we know now, it's not. Right. Like this is this is something I mean, like I'm like, why did you put nipples on the bat suit? I mean, yeah, your movies might be better, but <laughs> at what cost? What price, Hollywood? Like Rocky Horror is a great movie, except for the f- things that I find deeply uncomfortable. I think the easiest way to say it is I'm the two letters of LGBT that had the least to do with camp. <laughs> and I'm both of them. Um, so I it's funny. I have a very uneasy relationship with camp. And so it's funny because Barbarella is something it's like, no, no, it's perfect. I like it. Yeah. More, more of the, more of the lady at the end, please. Yeah. <laughs> more, we don't, we don't need that angel dude. Let's just get rid of him. I don't need that. I, mean, I know you love Madonna. 
Well, for yeah, instance. but yeah, except I love Madonna, except when she starts to appropriate ballroom culture and then just goes on from there. It's all downhill. Everything that appeals to her core audience does not appeal to me. I had a friend in, in school. This was the first gay person I knew I knew. And we were talking about our favorite Madonna things. And I talked about mine and he was like, gross. And that's it. That's yeah. so like, I like Madonna, but in a very specific part. You're going to talk about one of the campiest personalities yeah, of all but, in but your last segment. we talked about the fact that, I, I mean, as Matt said, maybe that, that, that what I'm talking about today has some dubious distinctions yeah. in terms of camp because it's not centered in a way that uh, I think that the other two films are and something like Rocky Horror is. Well, I mean, that's completely fair. I love camp. Like, I, I watch a lot of camp. I have historically watched a lot of camp. I love Rocky Horror. I mean, like you said, there are problems with camp for sure, but I do enjoy it quite a bit. We've talked about Ed Wood before on this podcast. That's somebody that I really enjoy. Performers like David Bowie, I think, do a really fun job with camp. We also talked about horror. I didn't put this down in the notes, but like people like Wes Craven and John Carpenter integrate a lot of camp into their slashers, especially. And so I really enjoy that. I don't actually enjoy straight up slashers. I enjoy campy slashers. <laughs> and so, you you know, that's that's something that that you have to kind of take into account. I also wrote down Batman 66, which you mentioned, uh, Matt. It's a great example of camp. And Buffy the Vampire Slayer was also something that I think that was actually one of the first campy things that I watched as a teenager. And then I sort of like went back from there. So there's a lot of things that I would I would definitely say have drawn me to this particular aesthetic. So let's talk about the film you watched for today, Matt. The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert from 1994. I have never seen this film before. 60 second plot summary. Um, so it's an Australian film, and basically the, the titular Priscilla Queen of the Desert is the bus in which two drag queens, uh, well, I guess there are three drag performers, two are cishet men and the other is the third one is a trans woman, go on a road trip to the Australian outback to perform at a hotel in Alice Springs, and it's it's kind of an much like Barbarella, it's episodic and they encounter certain groups of people on the way and certain things are revealed. But yeah, at its at its simplest, it's it's kind of like Fury Road in which it's a road trip. So Australians just love their road movies. Wouldn't Fury Road be like five times better if it was all drag queens? I mean, you could almost argue that it already I, yeah, is. I, <laughs> I think well it's funny because I've seen the first Mad Max movie and then the newest one. And I'm like, I know Tina Turner is in the third one. So, like, is this series a progression from just from straight to queer? And the first one is very much about being forcibly... It's like a cop movie. Well, it's like being forcibly separated from a traditional heterosexual marriage into Fury Road. <laughs> it's more queer with every installment. Yeah. I like that. I like that theory. Why did you pick this one for today, Matt? Well, why did I pick it? I think it has it has a reputation of being, you know, campy for one. I do really enjoy drag and I think this is one of the the kind of mainstream foundational pieces that helped like mainstream kind of drag culture as well. Again, it's 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 from 94. It was written and directed by Stephen Elliott who again is a cisgender gay man who interestingly, and I don't know if this was 
because Australia is going to Australia and it's even in some ways worse than than North America in terms of of homophobia, if you can even believe it. Um, but didn't publicly come out until 2012, despite having been li- living with hi- with his partner since the 1980s. And yeah, it's it's interesting kind of as I reflect on it and kind of our discussion where I expected this movie to feel campier than it actually was, even to the point where I was like watching it and I was like, okay, this is one of the first like, you know, big successful global movies that like helped mainstream some elements of, of queer culture and portray queerness in any more sympathetic or, or positive light. I didn't feel like it was super camp. But then again, you know, you have drag queens that are wearing like... Hugo, it stars Hugo Weaving, a very young Guy Pierce, and then Terrence Stamp as well. Again, we don't love to see cis actors play trans characters, but we got a pretty sympathetic portrayal of a trans character in 94, so I guess they get somewhat points for that. But yeah, you have Hugo Weaving wearing a dress made out of flip-flops in one of, you know, just walking around town. So like, there is a certain level of, of camp inherent in drag, but like, I saw this movie more as a good and bad metaphor for what we've been talking about, the various vectors of a white queer experience. So we have cycles of joy in our found families, joy in art, again, camp, our our drag performance, contrasted by experiences of fear and queer phobia for just the nerve, the gall, the audacity, and the gumption to live a queer life authentically. So like at times this is kind of like it's, both a fun watch and uplifting watch, but like a tough watch too, because they're the titular Priscilla gets hate crimed. They gets an, a kind of anti queer age related message that they then have to paint over. So Guy Pierce paints the bus in lavender. There's an epi- There's an, an incidence of queer of gay panic as well, in which Guy Pierce is is nearly gay bashed. That then Bernadette, the one of the characters and the love interest that she finds on the road as she's a bereaved bereaved woman and that's why she goes on the ro- the road trip then end up stopping so yeah it's kind of lots of lots of ups and downs that way but like i think to why it's considered important at the time is because it was a sympathetic portrayal of again white queerness but like white queerness like specifically and i was a little hesitant to kind of like watch it at the same time because i knew that there was a trans character and it had, again, I want to clarify that, rightfully so, as I've been calling out my white cis queer peers, I am a white cis um, queer person, but like the trans character wasn't the bot of a lot of jokes, where like Mars Attacks, again, we talked about Tim Burton and, and campiness and stuff there, there's a not great trans joke in Mars Attacks that I don't think like holds up really well, whereas I think this is better like even to the point where adam who is guy pierce's character is probably the most stereotypical white gay and i think if if both he and hugo weaving were that character i think that stereotype would be okay not not great but i think you're allowed one because we have hugo weaving's portrayal which is much more not that and again he's spoiler alert for the movie it finds out that he was in a straight marriage before his wife is a lesbian, his ex-wife is a lesbian, that's who he's going to see, has a child from that relationship, that's who runs the hotel in Alice Springs in the outback that they're going to perform at. But yeah, Adam makes a like sassy gay man joke in which he dead names Bernadette, the trans character, and Hugo Weaving rightfully chastises him and, and 
and calls him out for it too. So again, dead naming, not great, but again, recognizing that we don't do that. And even if you think you're being like a sassy, yes, queen, you know, kind of gay about it says like, Hey, no, we don't do it. I thought was, was nice to see, especially back in 94 where again, we talked about certain versions of queerness, upholding racial stereotypes and white supremacy. I think the thing that like, doesn't hold up the most for me is there's a like a Filipino woman character that trades in racist mail order bribe and like sex worker stereotypes and you know performative accents and and things like that and while one of the producers on the film has commented to that criticism of them trying to show a kinship and outsiderness between this Filipino character this racialized sex worker character and both queer men and then the the trans woman i don't think it succeeds in that at all and i think that is kind of like a bit of like a retroactive excuse where again it is trading in those stereotypes for comedy again in that way that like certain versions of camp we were talking about before can can uphold both patriarchy and and white supremacy but uh yeah it overall i do think it is a a fun road trip movie and lots of helicopter shots of, and I think one of them is even the poster of a lavender bus with a giant silver high heel with, you know, drag queens just luxuriating on it. So, I mean, can't be all bad, right? So I asked you before the episode started, I was like, which one is this one? Is this the one with Swayze or not? Yeah, it's the not Swayze one. This is the right. Australian so one. in uh, so first in '95, another movie that is is similar in some ways called and full title Tessie will appreciate to Wong Fu. Thanks for everything. Colon Julie Newmar. Julie or Newmar. semicolon Julie Newmar. And it's it's Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, and John Leguizamo. I think I've seen both of these movies, but I know I've seen Priscilla, but. You said a lot of things about uh, the the trans representation in this movie, and I'll tell you, as somebody right now who's who's writing about transgender representation in young adult novels, in some ways it's really good, in some ways it's not. My lens is this movie, uh, to Wong Fu, of course, Boys Don't Cry, Ed Wood. Those movies all came out in the 90s. Now, when you think about Ed Wood or Dr. Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror, there's a conversation there about whether those characters are trans. They could be if the character or the person Ed Wood indeed thought they were. Of course, we don't have access to that. One's a fictional character, the other's dead. But the idea of cross-dressing or you know, the word that's used in Rocky Horror, transvestite, are terms that can fit under the trans umbrella, but it's really a self-ID situation. My point is, the really good thing about Priscilla is that it does a good job of somebody like me, who was a teenager, seeing this movie and really understanding that trans people are all right. There's no reason to be this way to gay people, to transgender people, to anybody. And that's That's a lot of what films in the 90s, I think, did. I think there was a lot of good work done by these filmmakers and even the actors who are doing things we don't really want them to do because there was no other way to do it, really, at this point in the 90s. Yeah. 
Yeah. Those films really helped me. And I mean, Boys Don't Cry was helpful in that way, too, because in a very negative way, you know, just really educate and show. But I'll tell you, the really problematic thing about all of these films, including Priscilla, is it really reinforced an idea in my head about what trans is and what trans isn't and what it was. And it's really hard to talk about it because I don't really know exactly how to explain it yet. But I watch a movie like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and I'm like, well, this person's trans and that's cool and they must know that. And one of the things that's happening in YA books about transgender adolescence is they are really talking about that idea of how do you know? Because, you know, that was something I always wondered about, about whether you're, uh, you know, gay, bisexual, lesbian, transgender, whatever. It's like, I guess you just know, don't you? Well, no, sometimes you do, but other times you don't. And it was really just all of these movies and all of this campy stuff told me that these people know who they are. You know, so with this, you know, so on the one hand, it does a really good thing to show the straights that these people are good people. But it really showed me that because I don't identify with this, I must be one of the straights. And it took decades to figure out that wasn't true. So I just kind of see that showing through in these movies. And so I was just hearing you talk about it. I'm reminded of all that. Yeah. And there's there's like on one hand. It's like for the time works. There's this like, there's this really like interesting conversation where a character is like talking to Bernadette about like, basically about Bernadette's transition and, and, you know, like not in like so many words, but about like, how did you decide? When did you know? And there's, there's a flashback to a Christmas as a child. And and the bit is that Bernadette gets the doll and her sister gets the truck because she flipped the gift tags because you know she's always known right which again when you think about like from a like very like this is for the straights point of view like as you're saying to repeat your very astute point back to you sam where it's like oh bernadette's always known right whereas again where is that journey and like some of the the messiness of like figuring out your identity because it's like a lot of these stories are like i wonder how much it's like oh i want to know who i am so i'm i am I will use <laughs> Stephen Elliott, uh, the writer director, as as my straw person for this. Is like I want to live this like this authentically. I want to be publicly out. I want to do like, and I I'm talking about. I want to be at the end point already. So I'm writing these characters at the end point. When obviously Tick, who's played by Hugo Weaving, he's gone through the feeling like he had to be in a straight passing, you know, in a straight relationship with a queer woman to have the child. He has left them. He has lived Sydney, you know, and has done this out where it's like, I think there's some interesting elements there for like that character's journey. But again, not not on on Bernadette's side. It's interesting that Hugo Weaving is in this movie, of course, because and I think this this kind of brings us back to camp in a couple of ways is that that camp can liberate, but can also constrain in some ways. There's only so much camp can do. So you think about another Hugo Weaving movie. And this is the time to plug our appearance on Wild Pretty Things. Think about The Matrix, which as you could call camp, but is doing something completely different. And it's not, and they're ending up telling a story that can be read 
as an allegory for being trans in a much more, I don't know if nuanced is the right word, but it's a word. And and by the way, Tessa, I'll go back. One of my favorite works of camp is Hedwig and the Angry Inch. You do love that film. I do love that. But even that movie, think about that one says in that movie, it's a really good depiction of, of a trans character and some of the issues that come along with being trans. But it also reifies that big idea about being trans as, have you had the surgery yet? Which is not a part of being trans. Yeah. Necessarily, it can be. But so that goes back to the point about how problematic, you know, um, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's just true for trans. I think it can be problematic for anybody under the, the big giant queer umbrella who's seeing something reflected back to them in camp because camp can only do so many things. And I think that's one of like, the was one of the kind of frustrating takeaways for me with Priscilla was the ways in which this came out in 94 and it's like a lot of things like haven't changed within like the queer umbrella and like on one level like you're talking about like cis male queers like gatekeeping drag and who can do drag and the conversations that are going on not just in you know the the window I think of most people's into drag culture being drag race but like you know who can who can do drag right do do you have to be a cis gay man to do drag or can you know who can do it so like on one level like having bernadette as a trans woman doing drag and like trans folks have always done drag like right and things like i think is like something kind of nice to see but then also it's like it's not being kind of as inclusive and we're still like having a lot of these conversations and and like excluding folks from some of these spaces and like our definitions of when we like perform to the strengths that this is what queer culture is they're like okay that's great you know i want to have my like 90 sassy gay best like my rupert everett best friend which is actually interesting the, the they originally approached rupert everett and jason donovan to be the leads for this movie and they both turned it down and i think that's probably like for the best like stamp weaving and pierce are really good like tessa if you have like i would it's worth watching with all of these 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 caveats definitely but yeah, just the ways in which like the culture hasn't moved and it, it's like very much this like 90s thing within the queer community where it's like we got so far. The white cis gay men are like at the tables of like, you know, decision making now and that's, you know, the flagship of queerness and then they can continue to, you know, exclude the like racialized folks who don't want cops at Pride. Because Pride's just a corporate party now. It's not a riot, you know? But anyways, sorry, this is me This is me hammering the same point over and over again. Well, I, I will say before we move on, I really like that you brought up the, the whiteness of this as well. Because, of course, like, ballroom culture, like, comes out of, like, black queerness. And so it's, it's yeah. interesting the ways in which that's been appropriated by, like, white cis men especially. And, like sanitized again like kind of loosely well and then sanitized like for for the consumption of right others so we can commodify right. queerness right like that's a whole other thing talking about drag race or, or legendary or like whatever right like it's yeah who are we performing this for at this point yeah it's it is Amen. it is absolutely a good question yeah all right so my next question for you all before we get to sam's project and finish up this episode is is camp over does it belong to a specific place or time 
Matt, you kind of mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast where you said you can't really do straight up camp anymore. And this is something that I've thought about. And I know Sam has thought about too, because we generally, when we think of camp, we think of certain time periods, but I don't see a lot of that now as much as I did in pop culture a few decades ago. So I'm really curious to know what both of your answers to this question is. I think the answers probably no, it's not. I think that like in our late stage capitalist society, like I think the idea to like commodify and like intentionally like, oh, we're we're making a campy masterpiece. Well, sometimes I think if you're like trying, I think that for me, if you set out to do something camp a lot of the time, it's not going to work. Like it might be campy, but it might be bad camp. I think what makes it challenging to do now is we're sometimes rightfully, sometimes less, a less sincere and more cynical society. And I think there's a certain sincerity to what you're doing that is inherent to camp that makes camp camp. And if you're doing something cynically just to, you know, fire up the content machine because, you know, you're Ryan Murphy, like, I don't, I don't know if that's going to necessarily work or like be as sincere. As a, a way to not quite transition to Mamma Mia 2 yet. But when we watched that the other day, I, I said to Tessa, I said, I think camp is over. I think it died with the pandemic. And and that doesn't mean it can't be revived. But I think that a big part of, of camp is bound up in in utopian thinking and aspirational thinking, in realizing that we're having to perform these things because the world hasn't gotten there yet, but it's grounded in the belief that it could get there because otherwise why bother? That's so modernist though. Like that, that whole like thinking, yeah. right? Like, isn't well, it? so I was, I was thinking about it and well, I mean, because I really enjoyed Mamma Mia too, but it made me very sad at the same time. And, and we'll talk about why in a little bit, but it's, it's kind of like, what's the point? And and I was thinking about, so I brought up Hedwig a minute ago, and what I was thinking about was Hedwig, and if anybody hasn't seen John Cameron Mitchell's film production of it, you just, you have to. It's such a good story, because this is somebody who's trying to come to terms with who they are, how other people perceive them in the world around them. And one of my favorite songs from Hedwig is a song called Exquisite Corpse. And, it, you know, it's just about... Uh, it's a reference to the surgery, but it's also just basically feeling like you're a dead body that's just been cut up by everybody. You know, that's one of the big tensions of that movie is, and of that character, John Cameron Mitchell saying, can you overcome this? Can you be reborn? Are there second chances? Are you destined to be that kind of queer, tragic story? It's the Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. Right? It's the I I love dead, hate living thing, right? Right. And and so I think one of the things about a lot of camp, especially the kind of camp that we watched with Mamma Mia too, is is trying to say, no, there is hope. We have to celebrate. As long as we can keep dragging share out, we will believe. <laughs> you know? I I, I joke. <laughs> As somebody who doesn't really care about Cher because that's not my thing at all, 
I still appreciate the fact that that Cher is a symbol for so many people of, and no, I'm not reading too much in it, of that like perseverance and 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 just and to me it's dead it's over like there's you got to show me you got to prove to me that we can get back time, yeah. yeah you got to prove to me that we don't need to turn back time to back. have anything good anymore <laughs> you know so until then well that's a perfect transition to talk about mama mia here we go again well, do you think camp is dead i don't know fine now you can i don't have an to answer mama to that mia. question <laughs> I think I kind of agree with both of you because I do think that camp, I think people have tried to commercialize camp and what they end up doing is more satirical than it is camp. Although there, there have been some good campy movies in the last decade. Like the love, Witch is a really good campy film that I'm, although we recently found out that the director of that film is transphobic. So it's like, Oh really? I didn't know that. Anyway, well, several people uh, who made camp probably are. Probably are. Yeah. So like, you know, there's, there, things but i agree that like in the way that the film industry is it's very difficult to actually make good camp i know this is a controversial opinion i did not like thor love and thunder sorry but that is what it is trying to do is it's trying to do camp intentionally and i don't think it works that's just me we we don't have i haven't seen it yet but this is me biting my lip and i know we have a heart out but i'm just like (laughs) i just have such like Taika feelings right now about like perform. Anyway, sorry. Just anyway, anyway. I don't want to belabor the point, but I do think that that's true. But I also do think that like we're in a very, very dark place. All of us very emotionally right now as like pop culture content, and so I don't know if camp is too optimistic for us right now. So like I do have these questions. I do think that it can still happen. I think it especially happens in films that are other genres like horror and science fiction uh, and romance, especially more than it is like films that are just campy in and of themselves. So, yeah, I'm interested to know if it will be reborn or what will take its place. Maybe something that's more trans friendly or less white cis queer will take its place. Who knows? Like, you know, there are room for other types of queer storytelling. Let's talk about Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Or as I like to call it, To Mama, To Mia. Or <laughs> as as Pop Culture Happy Hour called it, Mamma Mia 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> Mamma Mia 2 is better than the first one. And I'm going to tell you why. Yes. I'm going to tell you why. Because it uses the Godfather Part 2 structure? Sure. Let's say. Andy Garcia is in it. So, all Parker... The director of Mamma Mia 2, who is best known for his writing work on The Best Exotic Marigold Hotel and its sequel, directed this movie. The two male members of ABBA are still producers. All the cast is back. Nobody, but nobody, was going to tell anybody related to this movie that they couldn't do whatever the hell they wanted. This movie was a license to print money. Can't make camp and be told no. Period. End of story. Done, done, and done. Watch Ed Wood if you don't believe me. I mean, that was a very strong opinion. (laughs) Ed Wood made Plan 9 from Outer Space by tricking people into thinking he was making a different movie and managed to release it without oversight. If Taika Waititi could have done that, 
Thor would have been just the Love and Thunder would have been the best Marvel movie ever. But it wasn't because Feige said no. To what? I don't know. But I bet I do, actually. Nobody's on the recording who can tell me no. So I'm right and it's over. <laughs> so how does this connect to Mamma Mia? So Mamma Mia 2 is basically more Mama, more Mia. It's like it's just unhinged, out of control. Good. It's got... Amanda Seyfried, Dominic Cooper, Christine Baranski, Julie Walters, Meryl Streep, Cher, Pierce Brosnan, Stellan Skarsgård, Colin Firth, Lily James. Oh, my God. Listen, here's why this movie Sam is so good. Sam might be a little in love with Lily James. I, I'm not going to lie. I Okay. Okay. So there's there's two things here. The first thing is, is, is we all know that my, my hair inspiration is Peyton Sawyer from One Tree Hill. So I saw Lily James in Mamma Mia 2, and I was like, oh, I'm going to keep growing my hair once again. Oh, I'm going to keep going. That is the best hair I've ever seen in my life. That is my hair. If it gets that long and still looks that good, we're all good to go. And if not, there's extensions. It was so good. I loved this so much. Everything about this movie was great. I mean, you know, I, I, I am not... One of the people in the big LGBTQ plus community that likes Meryl Streep or Cher. But I like Lily James. <laughs> and Amanda Seyfried. And Amanda Seyfried. <laughs> because that's my queerness right there. That's it. Right there. I want to look like those people. I want to be friends with those people. That's, this is what I want. This is, this is the movie I want. I want all of these movies. I want. This is my camp. Okay. Right? So how was this camp? Because you said it, the camp, well, camp relates a little differently to this film than Barbarella. Well, is ABBA the most queer-friendly band in the world? Possibly. Lots of ABBA and Priscilla. Lots I of mean, ABBA and Priscilla. That's all I'm saying. And and the thing about it is, is like, it's really interesting when we talk about music that appeals to queer people. I like a fair bit of it, but I like it in a very straight-on way which is ironic because like it's it's a queer affection right you know but you know when i talked about the first movie many many episodes ago all the things i said on that episode still apply to this movie but i was really unsure how i would feel about them going back in time because as it is that godfather 2 sequence uh or uh kind of storytelling yeah. we go back and forth and it's like uh, okay we get rid of meryl streep for most of the film that's fine but I'm losing Amanda Seyfried. I don't like that. Turns out it was fine because we didn't really. She was in a lot of it. But but we got Lily James. So, you know, basically the movie is, if you don't know, and I haven't convinced you to watch it yet by, by my emoting, is that this is the story of how Donna, Meryl Streep's character from the first movie, met the three dads and how she fell in love with this island and and what could be this hotel, how she got pregnant, all that stuff. And and it's such an entertaining story because Lily James and her two co-stars are just going for it. And oh, it made me so happy. See, and Christine Baranski <laughs> is my queer icon, like especially in these movies. And she has the best lines in this movie. Oh, my. But also the person who was cast to play her younger self just was a dead ringer. So good. Just nailed it. Like, like playing like a younger Christine Baranski is probably one of the most intimidating things ever. And just like the nailed it. Yeah. 
you know, they go back to the well with Dancing Queen and Waterloo, which they had to. They couldn't just not put those into the movie again. If you don't know anything about Mamma Mia, I guess none of this makes sense. It's a jukebox musical to the tunes of ABBA. Dancing Queen is my favorite musical number from the show. Like, I don't know how to talk about this in a constructed way because I loved it so much and it made me feel so good. But the thing you have to understand is Dancing Queen, the musical number, is prefaced by two of the dads reenacting that Titanic thing. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> The Colin Firth and the Stellan Skarsgård, the younger versions of them, the younger versions of Harry and Bill do the king of the world thing. And it just, it's so joyful. And then they get off the boat and there's this huge dancing queen number. And I just felt good about my life. And anytime you can make me feel that for a few minutes at this point in time, you're doing something right. Now, of course, I felt really bad after that. And that's what made me think about camp being over. But, you know, for like five minutes, it was good. And that was five minutes I appreciated. Did you know, Matt, Mamma Mia 3 is in production? I did not know that. They pretty much ordered it right after Mamma Mia 2 was also a license to print money. But that was when the four members of ABBA started talking about making new music. And and, and the pandemic pretty much halted a lot of things. But the new ABBA album came out last year, I believe. I said while we were watching this movie that I really just should listen to ABBA. Just, just I should take a chance on them. I want to say knowing me, knowing you, and as a but I can't make it work. Well, I spent some money, money, money a while ago and bought ABBA Gold on vinyl. Yeah, so I just need I to be a super trooper you. and and try them out. Yeah, well, and if you have trouble finding it, just send out an SOS and I'll see. You. <laughs> has it, has anybody else written like a definitive pop culture song about Napoleon? Just, has anybody done it? <laughs> that whole that's probably one of my favorite sequences in the movie where they're like it's in so the French good. restaurant singing Waterloo. Yes. Yeah. It's so playful. Like that's what yeah. I got from this movie. Is it's got a very playful tone. As friend of the podcast Lazi would say, why do you hate joy? Because if you do, you're probably not gonna <laughs> like this movie. But I don't know how to explain it to you. Uh yeah, no, no, no. I just everything about this movie was great. One of our mutual friends, I just wanted to to text this friend and be like, I need this outfit and this outfit and this outfit. Can't you find them for me? It was just great. I love so it. recommend, it no. sounds. No, it's not. No, I don't <laughs> recommend it at all. Of course I do. For Gosh. anybody who wonders if I don't love things, I guess you know now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back next week with a much more restrained take on whatever it is we're doing. The Wachowskis. Oh, wait. Sorry. Yeah. I'll be back in two weeks with a more restrained tra- take on whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I guess there's like, like maybe like uh, not to be a guest in Word in the Last Word on Mamma Mia. Please, please do we that. go again. But I do agree it's better than the first one, but I think our cultural response 10 years later to, and maybe this has all ended because of the place we are in culturally um, four years later, five years later, whatever it is. But the way we responded to Mamma Mia 2 versus the way we responded to Mamma Mia 1 in 2018 versus 2008 is kind of interesting, right? But I do think it's better, but maybe we didn't give the first one a fair enough shake because we were all obsessed with The Dark Knight or something, like, as a culture. It came out the same... Know. What, was it the same I know, that's my favorite. Same weekend. They're, yeah, uh, they, like, came out the same weekend, I'm pretty sure. It was, like, total counter-programming. Right? Ow. 
Well, it's funny. I saw it for the first time last year. So, but we did rewatch The Dark you Knight. Like, you but we it, did though. rewatch The Dark Knight that year too. So. Yeah, we did. All right, let's wrap up. So, <laughs> as I said in this episode. <laughs> Next week, we are talking about the Wachowskis, specifically Wachowskis films. I'm so sorry. I don't know if you're not allowed on the podcast again, or I'm not allowed on the podcast <laughs> again, or we can't both be on at the same time. I don't know what happened. No, this is but all I great. Think Tess is about to lay down. We'll have to. Wait, 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 wait. We'll have to be bound. Oh. Uh, Tess, uh, Tess is going to uh, lay down the hammer, uh, though. It's gonna, something's going to happen. I, I don't, don't know. know. So we're going to be watching Wachowski films that we have never seen before. So tune in for that. All right, Matt, where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at at Mattyhugh, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. And you can also catch me talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine with past and, I would assume, future guest of Monkey of My Backlog, Elise. Where can people find you on social media? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. And I just want to point out, Matt, that Elise is doing our next Assigns episode, so it's never too early to think about what you're going to inflict on us in the future. (laughs) (laughs) All right. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are reading through all 41 of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. Send us your thoughts about the monkeys we've talked about today, what pop culture you've crossed off your list lately, what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes, or anything else that comes to mind. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog. Email us at monkeyoffbybacklog at gmail.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.